0: It is just this infusion in our life that we then use as another tool, not something that's taking over. And I hope that people come away with not only the people that work in AI are human, but that this is a human thing that is happening that helps us versus takes over us. Too much Terminator watching. We're not there yet. So,
1: Welcome to Humans of AI, where we tell the real stories of those who are building an AI or are making use of it in their daily lives. Today's guest is Tara Walker a principal software engineer currently working on open source and vector databases in Microsoft's developer division. Passionate about building software at scale and the intersection of AI and robotics, Tara has served as a tech evangelist and mentor for underrepresented minorities and the next generation of computer scientists. If you want to catch the latest episodes, make sure to subscribe and check out my free AI newsletter, Chaos Theory, and find me on social at Alex Chowmander. Now, without further ado, here's my talk with Tara. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Alex. I'm here joined with my friend and colleague, Tara, Tara Walker, and she has a very interesting story about how she got here in AI. She's currently working in the developer division of Microsoft, focusing on vector databases, embeddings, this whole uh, infrastructure that's part of the the co-pilot stack that Microsoft announced at Build. So uh, Tara can do a much better job introducing herself, So Tara, uh, I guess to tee it off, what is your origin story and how did you come to be where you are today?
0: Uh, I have a really kind of weird origin story. So I um, started in college. I was actually not a computer science major for my first quarter. I was a math finance major. And I was like, because I thought, you know, growing up, okay, I'm good at math. That's what you go do. And so I was like thinking I was going to be a stockbroker on Wall Street. I took my first finance class and I realized I was bored out of my mind. There was no way I was going to be able to do this for the rest of my life. And my uncle came up to visit me in college and uh, took me to lunch and said, well, you've always been good at math and you've always been trying to program something on that computer. Why wouldn't you just go into that? And literally the next quarter, I changed my major and the rest is history. I'm literally in computer science and in this field because of my uncle just said, well, why not just do what you love? You're always trying to program something on the computer. So that's literally how I got into this. And then that obviously forayed into getting into data science and, and AI. But otherwise, I would be a miserable stockbroker <laughs> on Wall Street right now if my, my uncle hadn't saved me.
1: Wow. Wow. I mean, I guess kudos to your uncle for for showing the path.
0: Right. Um, <laughs> showing me the way.
1: What would you say your uncle said that you were always interested in like programming computers or or tinkering with these things? I guess even going earlier than college and back to your own upbringing, childhood, I guess what sort of experiences, what environment did you grow up in that I think I guess brought you towards being more of a tinkerer? Uh,
0: so, ironically, I started programming when I was 12, and it happened kind of on a fluke. I was um They had these like, I guess, challenge it or gifted whatever you call it, programs. And you could take every summer, you could take something special or particular that you were interested in. And one summer for one of the programs, it was literally like classes, but I don't think they sold it to us that way because again, going to classes in the summer, um, they were offering a programming class, believe it or not. And so I was like, okay, well, let me try this. And the minute I found out, like, so I took the class, like I said, I was 12. And the minute I found out that I can control the computer and make it do what I wanted to do, I was absolutely sold. And so after that point in time, I was voracious about what else can I do? What else can I make the computer do? What you mean just by writing these little sentences, then it does what I want to do. And so that's what got me started. So I started actually programming at 12 because of a summer program for, for school uh for get whatever gifted whatever they call those programs and i was hooked and so that's why my uncle was like "Well, why don't you just do this for a living because i would do that even on my spare time i was like okay wait i just found out i could make this graphic go across the screen or something it was just i was hooked at that point in time so i kind of started i was lucky i kind of started out earlier than most really being into you know this whole programming computer thing um that that I don't think most people were, especially being a woman. They yeah, I I was a little odd, I guess, as far Mm -hmm. as I was always trying to figure out what I could do next with the computer. Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, for me, I've uh, I was a late bloomer, if you will, in the CS and just programming space. I really didn't start until to college, actually, just because my uh, high school and all that didn't offer any sort of programs. So yeah, so I mean, I think, just having that structure, having that environment to be able to, to, to fail, to try things out. I think that's super important, especially if you are uh, yeah, trying to get into a field like computer science. Uh,
0: I also think it helps you as you really get into it as a professional, do better. Because most places don't allow you to fail. And don't get me wrong, computer science can be tough. And even being in, you know, the job can be tough. But understanding that you will fail and it's a trial error thing and, and you keep at it is where your success is, I think, is what makes you better in this field. But I think you have to get past that, that there's going to be a bunch of failures to get to your big like aha moment. But the minute it happens, it is amazing. So, yeah, I think... Be starting that journey and understanding that makes you just a better technologist all around.
1: For sure. One thing that you've told me before is that you also have a different uh, life experience around singing. <laughs> you want to give the listeners uh, at least a history of of that that time.
0: Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of funny. Yeah. So um, when I was going to high school, so I actually went to a math and science high school. But when I was about to go, you here, so I'm from Atlanta and in Atlanta, you actually apply to the schools. uh, They have what they call magnets. So either you're going to a private school or you're applying to a magnet school based upon a specialization. And I had applied to two magnet schools. One was the computer science, math and science high school, and one was the performing arts uh, high school. And the performing arts high school actually got in and was going to sing and uh, was actually going on places for like recording contracts, all the other good stuff. And my dad, of course, said that is not what we're doing. <laughs> we are going to actually go to this math and science. We're not singing and singing on tables and stages. That is not the life we're having for you. So that is, that's kind of how I am literally made the choice. I could have either been, and I the performing arts school is very famous. It had people like Don Johnson and other very famous people, Isaac Hayes, you know, those kind of people that either they win or their children win. So I was really excited about it. But yeah, my dad squashed that dream. I still every now and then sing every now and then. My vocal coach is a Grammy-nominated vocal coach, and she actually was on the American Song Contest. So I was out there with her for a little while. But yeah, it's a passion. I just don't do not do it typically. But yeah, you. that's one of the things. One thing that's really interesting to know, I found that a lot of people that are really into math, and I don't think people get this because they deem math and science is not as creative, especially computer science it is. A lot of people who are in that field, because music is just kind of math, and um, are really you know, good at that. So yeah, I used to, I cannot play a lick on the piano anymore, but I grew up playing the flute and the piano, and then also singing and all the things that... I don't do as much as I should anymore, but I I do still sing when I kept on.
1: Yeah, yeah, when I talk to my friends who are musicians and even thinking about some genre like jazz, which is thought of to be like very free form, free spirited and and sometimes all over the place, it actually has a very like defined structure too. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sort of representation, you know, can be even expressed as, as mathematical concepts. So I think we're starting to see some AI being used to generate some music and, you know, being able to learn from these underlying representations or structures of, of songs of, of, of these genres. I think that is just very telling that there are not two separate camps like math, no. science, and creative music. There, they, there's a lot of harmony between them.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I think musical notes can be expressed very easily in math and I don't think people realize just the coordination of it thinking back to just, you know, Beethoven, some of the like very classical things, how mathematically involved they were. Uh, Also, you know, the, you talk about AI and the intersection, there's now this new intersection of entertainment and AI, and it'll be interesting to see where this comes. I think that there was just a a artist who now is either has an album or something that was going to have an infusion of them actually having talent and also AI. And I think that's a great way to look at this as people are, fearful, I will say, of AI is it's not a takeover, it's just a fusion, just like any other technology has been in the past, right? We People were like, wait, you're going to go from cars, I mean, courses to cars, what, you know, they're going to blow up. It is just this infusion in our life that we then use as another tool, not something that's taking over. And I hope that people come away with not only the people that work in AI are human, but that this is a human thing that is happening that helps us versus takes over us. Too much Terminator watching, we're not there yet, so.
1: Yes, yes, but hence this Humans of AI podcast to tell the stories of, of the humans actually working with and building uh, an AI. So actually to transition there, uh, I'd love to hear or you can, to give the listeners a view of what are you currently working on, Tara?
0: Okay, so great question. So I am currently working, uh, so as you said, I worked at DevDiv, as you know, I used to work with you in Semantic Kernel, but in the DevDiv space, developer division space, what we're working on right now, is how do we get all these great vector databases to run on um, our cloud? So I work in, in, as well as how do we interface with them um, in different languages? And so that's what's really exciting right now, just, you know, really working not only with third party and open source, that's what's fun, open source vector databases, but also our own, getting them run effectively on the cloud, but not just that, make it easier for folks to not only understand vector databases, but understanding the embedding. So the one key thing, obviously, if you're going to store, whether you're going to store at a vector database, it's going to be... Embeddings, which is just pretty much a mirror of array of, of vectors for make it super simple. And so for some reason that concept is a little foreign to most. You know, if you're coming from the relational or no sequel type of world, wait, I'm storing vectors and how do I search them? What is this K nearest, approximate nearest neighbor stuff? And that's what I'm working on. How do we make that super simple for people? How do they create embeddings and get them in the vector databases? How do they do that really easily? And um, so that's what the team and I are kind of brainstorming right now. How do we help people with that? How do you understand, oh, wait, I should use a, oh, wait, this quantization, what is this whole thing? Scalar quantization versus, you know, product quantization and what does it mean? Making that really super simple for people so that it's not a barrier to get their applications that are going to use semantic search or some type of semantic features into existence. so that's what I'm working on and I'm having a ball I want to say also thank you because I think I love embeddings more and it's your fault uh because you you sent me so much great stuff about embeddings like I'm literally now an embeddings fan I was like oh what else can you do with these different embeddings and checking out the different embedding models so that's kind of what I'm working on right now and it's I'm having a ball and learning so much so that's that's what I'm in my element I think when I'm in a place where I don't know everything about it and I'm learning and also building it's yeah I can't I can't be happier
1: I I think you've also said that you've had to uh or that you've been changing your your major or your emphasis (laughs) uh, in your program uh a few times
0: yeah so I'm in grad school which is crazy and every time I think that I have it what my thesis is going to be what I'm going to go forward with and I, I thought I had it. It was going to be my focus still had an ML component of it. It was I was focusing more on devices and robotics, which I still love. And that was kind of my focus. And how do you uh, do multimodal type of AI in regards to robots? So my focus was around robotics and how do you look at that? And that was going to be my focus and and what I focus and what I was researching. And then... All of a sudden, this world of vector databases and embeddings have just kind of overtaken me. And so now I am, to the chagrin of my advisor, I am now changing my major to kind of focus on that or, you know, my specialization to focus on that. And now I have to figure out, well, what will my thesis be? (laughs) I don't know. But again, I'm enjoying uh, the ride. I I think I kind of know what it is, but I'm not gonna say it. Just so no one will take it. But I think I know what it is. It will be around. There's some challenges with embeddings that I don't think should have to be challenges, and I just think we haven't figured out how to make different types of embeddings work effectively. And so that's I think will be what my research is around. But we'll see. But yes, I've changed my major. The the ML bug has. Has really kind of overtaken a little bit of the robotics, but it's still I still love robotics as well
1: without naming names or without choosing a favorite, because there's been so many vector databases kind of coming out, almost feels like every every week there's there's some new offering on in open source. What have you seen as ways for different projects to differentiate themselves or how how are they innovating in in unique
0: ways? I'll tell you, the things that I think are really, really effective is how people are using filtering, filtering with metadata. You'll find that a lot of people are trying to figure out how do I, you know, you can do the typical, okay, I'm getting this embedding back because if I do an approximate neighbor search, it, it gives me that back. But how do I coordinate that in different ways really easily around what have I signed this with? So let's give a great example. So I want to know something about history. And let's say I, this historical reference is around, I don't know, World War II or something or whatever. Obviously I can get an embedding back that does that. But what if I wanna know this particular moment in history is also related because of the region to something that's locally happened in the region that has ramifications of what was World War War II. It may, the, the approximate nearest neighbor search may or may not bring that back because I'm really just looking at locale. And, you know, and so how do I do that? So maybe in the payload and the metadata in my embedding, I might put specifically information about location and other things that then would relate them. How do I then do a search, but then be able to do a search based upon payload and metadata? And I see that being a, a huge differentiator in some of the ways people not only can filter, but can search on payload and metadata efficiently at scale. So it's one thing to be able to, to search on it because you could you could build your own quick search on it but to have that in the offering like prego like it's just in there is huge and that's to me i'm starting to see a differentiator another one i'm seeing is actually offering the different layers of quantization as a flag, if you will, to, you know, not really, but as a flag or offering, if you will, to the vector databases, I think is huge. Because again, you know, if you get these huge embeddings, it becomes much more efficient if I can use stuff like scalar quantization to shrink that down and make the searches easier because especially image data and other embeddings can be huge. And as more I get in, I wanted that to be quick. And so being able to offer that where, I can do that is good. The last thing I saw that is really, really powerful. Um, what you call them collections, groups, indexes, depending on the vector database, they call them different things. Being able to store different types of embeddings within an embedding group. I'm gonna use the embedding group because again, everyone names their collections, indexes, whatever very differently, is a very powerful feature that I'm seeing some of them come out with. And I think that's a huge differentiator the fact that I can store different types of embeddings, whether it's an image-based or text-based embedding as a part of one collection, and then do a search, a semantic search across them is super powerful. And so I think those are some of the things we're seeing out as um, differentiators, uh, both in performance and just capabilities that all of them don't have. And then you'll see the ones that do kind of pull forward with it, so. Yeah, fascinating. what are your thoughts, Alex? Like, what what do you think that they could do uh, to make it better?
1: So from my vantage point, it does get a little fuzzy, at least from my survey. And I'm obviously not looking at it as deeply as you are, but um, that, yeah, these vector databases more or less offer a similar thing, similar experience. But when you start getting into the details or start having more complex use cases, like you mentioned, like being able to search with metadata and to really just retrieve the most, not just the most relevant, but also like relevant in the vector space uh, or similar in the vector space, but also relevant in, I don't know, keywords or like traditional, just like Mm keyword-based searching. I think if you can combine those two, it will be a lot more powerful and ultimately, you know, more delightful for the end user. But it's, it's tricky. I guess I haven't seen too much today, like how, how they are looking to solve that. So I guess that, that goes to, if, if there are any vector database listeners here, these are some ways that you can uh, innovate. So yeah, you're welcome I, for <laughs> you're <into> your <laughs> product gonna, roadmap.
0: <laughs> right. I know of two that are kind of looking into that. One has it, uh, but you really, to your point, have to dig into details. I think they need to do a better job of, promoting that more. So one has it uh, much more integrated, but they need to promote it more. But to your point, beddings and relevance, because relevance means something different to everyone. We can do the mathematical, you know, and searches and get stuff back, but then that relevance by different things, I think is your spot on, like relevance by time, relevance by location. um, And ta- again, what does time mean? And us being able to define that I think will make these more powerful. But I think as people keep using this and as we get in this space, you're going to see more of those requests come across. And I think that's why I think this is a fun time, because I think we're just on the precipice of of what could be. And that's super exciting for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. So to a different topic, still in this AI large language model space, one thing that has come up recently uh, as Kind of a, a buzzword worthy thing, but is this idea of agents and kind of having an AI do things more autonomously without being explicitly told, like, "Oh, this is how you should do it." What are your th- quick thoughts about that?
0: It's funny you said that because uh, one of the this comes back to my robotics story and using an email because that's kind of what I wanted the uh, AI to do with robotics. Have an agent, for like a better term, that would act on the um, actuators and the sensors using synthetic type of data to generate things and be able to do autonomously. So, yeah, a human has never really stepped in lava, not to live to tell about it. How do you know? So we don't really know what it is other than the camera views that we had. But what is it like? up close? What is the temperature? Like whatever. We can't sustain those, but robots can. So it's funny you talked about the agents. One of the parts of the things that I was thinking about as far as um, when I was working on the other aspect of it is how do we generate these agents uh, with both synthetic data and synthetic models that could make these decisions um, and make these inferences even though it wasn't trained to. So it's kind of funny you said that. So when I think of agents I immediately started to think about that and the uh, capabilities. So that was in a robotic space, but let's think about the agents that we have right now in generative AI. I think it's a phenomenal offering. I think it's actually the most complex one to get right though. I think that may be also what fuels the fear. So let's talk about that for a minute. I do want an agent to make some intelligent decisions for me, but we have to be make sure that there's checking in that those decisions then relevant to the person. It goes back to things that relevant. And I think then people will feel more comfortable at it. So yes, I want an agent, let's just make up something, to automatically send something and make sure all my doors are locked in my house. I don't know, it's just something, whatever. But what if, I also don't want the agent to lock my, I don't have a dog, but let's say my dog or my child, if, if I had one, in, in the house alone and can't get out. So it's I, I think I like this concept of agents. I think as we get um more knowledgeable about it, that it is it's gonna be a really powerful thing. I think the for instance, we put out a thing with Chat GPT and Robotics at the company we both work for. And I thought that was a great opportunity to look at what agents' capabilities could do in this space with in the physical. Um I'll be interested in your your thoughts about it. Like I said, my my when I the minute I think agents and taking the agents out of the frameworks concept of agents, but when I think about the agents and the new concept of it working autonomously, the first place I feel like we could cut our teeth on it. It's also the, the hardest place is robotics because it, it it's uh infusing our physical world and something acting on our physical world with actually the models making these autonomous decisions. So that's usually what I think about it first. And as a great rule of thumb. is If we're getting this right. What are your thoughts?
1: I think the tough part is. Yeah exactly this alignment piece. Where like the human has. Can explicitly say he or she wants. But mm-hmm. that messaging might not be exact. Like you might, you might say. Oh yeah lock all the doors. But then in your mind you're like. But I actually also have these other criteria. That I didn't explicitly say. Mm-hmm. But if the agent were to just act on my behalf, oh, I would be like, oh, that's that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. So I think the piece around like how do you capture both ex- explicit and implicit signals is really challenging, actually. It's like you, you probably need some sort of like mind reading tech or something. I don't know to 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 do Why this. You,
0: no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll just I'll just think as you were saying it's funny you're saying that some of the things we were talking about, you know, early on with the vector databases is how do we store memories or or things that then make it more relevant to you like i i want to pull back not only information that's just generic and embedding that's generic this is an approximate nearest neighbor search about food but i want that to be relevant that i don't eat beef right so you can pull what's the best recipes that are out for this is july but if you pull back beef that's not that's not right uh just like you talked about locking all the doors but yeah i don't don't lock the door to my bedroom and now I can't get out. But I said all the doors. Yeah, kind of thing. It, I, I think some tech that helps us get there. But to your point, that's going to be the hardest thing. And I think, to your point, the mind reading, I think that's the part that scares people. Do I want, it, even me, I was like, do I really want a robot or AI or something to read my mind? Probably not. There's a lot going on up there. But that would be the only way to get it close.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the combination of memory do make these agents a lot stronger and they that could be accurate with vector databases or things like that. But yeah, I mean, I, it's an emerging area. It's a very costly one too because each time you're running these things, you're making calls to the large language model, which isn't free. Yeah. So, I mean, down the line, maybe when these models become more commoditized, they can be run on more consumer type hardware, then yeah, maybe we'll see a lot more innovation and advancement,
0: I think you hit the nail on the head. Just the training of these large models are relatively expensive to do. if you think about the hardware and stuff needed, it would be great to try to figure out a way, and I guess that's why we're we do what we do to make to your point commoditize that because right now it's it's not something easily done um by, you know, two people in a garage, right? It's like, hey, I'm going to build this fantastic model that's going to compete with some of the larger trained models and it will be interesting to try to figure out how we do that um more efficiently and maybe you know being in this OSS space we've seen some phenomenal things come out hopefully this will be one of them i'm i'm hoping
1: yeah yeah 100% to transition to a different topic i think we've heard a lot about what's trending what's buzzworthy and all that but I think there's another side of the house where you know, there are topics that people may not be considering as much or not it's just not the, the topic of the day. Uh, so what would you say are some areas that people are not paying enough attention to in AI?
0: Honestly, ethics, ethical AI, I feel like we put on the back burner to get the, oh, this, this model is accurate. Uh, I didn't overfit. I get all into the technical details of the model and the building of it. And I do not think—not just think—I don't. I almost know we have not focused on the ethics of it. And how do we do that in a in a way that is going to be good for everyone? We've seen a lot of ways that AI honestly can harm, and and I struggle with that as someone who really loves this space, making sure that we are considering every aspect, different regions, different people, different races, different demographics. Different in this as we go forward with this. I really want this to be something that can help people and not harm and I I that's my only fear. And and a little bit fear differently than I think what you see like on the news and all the you know governmental studies and that, that's not what I think. I I'm really concerned with the true ethics of it. When we when you do something. Are you to your point checking in? Have you considered different regions? Are we training on multitudes, uh, platitudes of different spaces? Some small country in Brazil may have something that we haven't looked into because we're overlooking them because it's like, oh well, it works for the majority of people, but the people that it doesn't work for, it can harm, and that's the thing I think we don't focus on a not a lot. I think you have a lot of people that are raising that alarm, but honestly, in the field, I see those people being almost denigrated where they're like, ah, you know, they're, they don't know what it's talked about. And I would love for us not to see harm done before we actually take it seriously. So that's Mm -hmm. the part where I think it is not the technical part of it. Right. But it is something I think is super important that I think about.
1: It's one of these situations where it's moving. The technology is moving so fast and people in the ethics space, often, or at least the perception is that they are just behind. They're they're operating on old news, old information, and whatever principles that they come up with, it's already outdated with this new capability, new, new model that like that's come out. But if anything, that that just means that more ethicists need to be like right side by side with these teams as they're building the the future, as they're building you know new technology. Because otherwise, yeah, if they don't have that perspective, then it just gets lost in the in the shuffle.
0: I think that we're in a great space that AI can really help people. So let's do that. And Maybe that's just kind of my attitude about it. I feel like I'm really excited because not only is the tech exciting, but I really do think this can help us move along as a society. Or at least I'm hoping so. Maybe I'm. this is me and my rose-colored glasses on. But I, I really, that's what I believe. So the only way I feel like to do that effectively is to, to your point, in the process. I know I, right now, I follow uh, Joy Bowame, um from the MIT labs um, and the Algorithmic Justice League, and just some of the things she comes out with and some of the studies, because that's what she did her doctorate on, have been amazing to me. And I always wonder if we are paying attention to, you know, those things uh, that she's talking about. And I feel like that would be so powerful to have someone like her if everyone, everyone who's building models and, and us playing with these different things, frameworks, models, a whole nine yards would have someone like her who's very versed in the space to help us make sure we're also doing the right things in the space. So that's the only thing I feel like we're not talking about a lot. There's other cool tech things, but the thing that I think concerns me that we're not talking about a lot is the the ethical part of being a part of the development cycle of this.
1: So actually transitioning towards a topic that may be more optimistic sounding, (laughs) how about what would you say is something that you're personally uh, excited about for the future?
0: Honestly, it's kind of funny. It's back to my intersection of uh, devices and AI for generative AI. So uh, the fact that we have some of the vector databases, for instance, that can run on a device like a Raspberry Pi or uh, uh, things like that. I talk a lot with, I have to give him a shout out because I he really got me into this a lot. Pete Warden, he used to work for um, Google and he was able to quantize these huge models to run on a microcontroller. And again, the IoT person that I am, that's amazing. If you think about how big these models are and the fact that I can run on this tiny little microcontroller and the microcontroller for folks that don't know is is smaller than a Pi. A Pi really is almost like a mini computer microcontrollers don't you don't have a file system you don't have all these things but the fact that i can get a model to run on something this small that where literally a byte every byte counts is amazing so i'm hoping as we look at these larger models and at where they're going being able to put like you know an embedding repository like a vector database as well as with these bigger models which right now won't fit in any of these get them to be able to be quantized down to run on these devices I think would be powerful cuz there are billions of market controllers there in everything we do from our thermostat to our TV I think that to me that would be fantastic I know we're nowhere close to that right now these models are huge uh, billions of hyperparameters like we're we're not there yet but I would love to see that to me that would be really exciting and just the fact that we've done it with some of the other models that were popular prior to this, I am hopeful, and I think that's really going to open up the capabilities for this in different ways. And I know that's a very different way than most people think. But with my background in devices, I always think if we can run them in something that small, we we've arrived. So that's kind of where where I go. What where, where do you What is your What do you like? What do you think? Like, would be exciting to like have happened or what research would be cool to come out that you'd be like oh my God this is what's really exciting for me
1: most recently I've been thinking about just you know spending time with family and seeing uh you know family members get a little older and some of them having maybe a little harder time remembering things and just having or seeing like AI being a way to either preserve knowledge preserve memory and to give the older generation even tools or capabilities that um yeah just like brighten their their life and, and make mm-hmm. make the experience a lot better. Like you just some like tech around digitally restoring like photos, right? Like old mm-hmm. photos that you might have like in your family album that maybe is like low resolution and you're like, oh what would this look like if we made it like high-res or if we colorized it or things like that. I think those things are just like to me like very cool. That is used to amplify our experiences. Um exciting, very, very cool to see. And yeah, it's just, I guess speaks more towards the humanity side of yeah, like AI should be a tool that is used to amplify our experiences. Yeah.
0: I think that's a great idea. I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking about uh unfortunately me and my best friend have lost a lot of family members over the past a year and a half. And ironically we were talking about some of the things that family members were really good at, that how, how do we get, where are those documents, where are that, you know, we don't have them to say those sayings or to make those recipes or things like that. For instance, my aunt just out of our head can make any kind of cake. Like she never wrote it down everything else. And unless, and, and unless you took time to get that now, there was, there's no way to capture that now. When, if we had an AI, maybe we could have easily captured that as she made it, it observed her or something, you know, kind of thing. And then my best friend's dad had these amazing sayings. They were amazing, like I that we've never heard anyone else saying. It would have been great if there was some way to for AI to either capture that or for have us to remember it or something like that. So you, I, I like that I, that concept. I never thought about it till you said it. It would be great if AI could not represent them because you can't replace people. But those memories, that data, those those rest, restorations, those great times that we're losing in history would be amazing to, to do. Okay, Alex, get on it. That means you need to build (laughs) something around around that.
1: My next side project. Yes.
0: Okay, exactly. Exactly.
1: Cool. As we're winding down, one topic that I'd love for you to, to share is uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out how to keep up with this space. It's moving so fast, whether they're you know, just entering university or people who are already working, but they are seeing or sensing that, oh, I need to like do something. Otherwise I might get disrupted. What sort of advice would you give to people who are in that space or maybe looking to break into the field or just keep up with all that's happening?
0: I think it's hard for all of us. I uh, honestly, I am a part of probably every discord in life. (laughs) So that helps joining a lot of good newsletters. You have a a great one out, keeps me up on things. It comes across my email and I, I kind of set aside Believe it or not, on a Saturday morning, just to look through them. I really also like, so obviously, newsletters, uh following people like towards data science on either new, you know, LinkedIn or either uh Medium. I also did to, to just get started and everything else. This is such a great time if you want to get started with anything. You have Coursera, you have edX, you have these places that literally for free these. Powerhouses in this area giving you for free either classes or mini projects or whatever that you can get started with, whether you're in school or not. Whether you just, hey, I'm sitting around, I'm doing something totally different, I want to get into this. And I don't know if any other time and period that you had all these resources at your fingertips. Now, of course, there's a problem when you consume this, but the fact that it's there, that you know, you have all these resources, there's a Discord channel that james bridge from who actually ironically uh works at pinecone who's one of the vector databases has and it's all about learning ai and generative ai he has a channel that's out david uh i think his last name is shapiro i'm destroying his last name has a great youtube channel out that goes from everything from soup to nuts so between for me i subscribe to everything and then i just set aside time to go through certain things and i bucket that so like For this month, for me, I'm like, okay, this month, let's. I'm gonna make up something, even though it's not true. This month is vector databases. I'm actually working in that field, so it's not true. But let's say, let's say this is vector databases. Well, next month, maybe different embedding models for images, or the next month, maybe something else. Um, That's kind of how I've been organizing it. But this is a time now that it is so not hard to get started, and I don't think that was the case before. I think if you, especially in anything ML, you was like, okay. I have to know every linear regression, K, nearest, whatever. I had to know all of that. And now I don't know how to get started. You have that ability. And then for people who want to do hands-on, you have all these great frameworks that are out there that really get you started so easily. I'm really liking LOMNA Index right now. That's one of my favorites, just because I think the documentation and the getting started is really easy uh, for folks. and I'm looking at it for different reasons, but it's the it's the latest one that I've looked at. There are some other great ones out there, so don't want to pretend like I don't like the other great ones. It's just that's the latest one that has now piqued my interest because it's, it's now come on the scene. But you have all these frameworks now that you now only can learn these concepts, but you can actually make something that works in a couple of days, if not hours. I don't think we had that period between now, so... That was a long-winded way of saying there's lots of resources out there. I would just start subscribing and digging in, find your path and do it. If you're just getting started, Coursera, EdX, and even some of the colleges offer on your own time, offline, online resources that you could use that you could be an expert. Find these Discord channels, find these places that are popping up. There's so much out there that could get you from soup to nuts very quickly. And I don't remember another time in period of that you could get involved in something this seemingly complex so easily. What What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of information and resources out there. It really is just a matter of motivation. And if you believe that it's something that's really important to you, right, then yeah, allocate time, dedicate uh, a chunk of it to learning, to trying things out, to playing around with things. Um, and you know, see where it goes from there. You don't have to be that next expert AI researcher, PhD, etc., to to participate. Actually, like that may have been the case several years ago because it was gatekept or whatever. Like the yeah. the this knowledge was more in the in the universities or things like that. But through open source, through projects like. Semantic kernel or yep. uh, newsletters and, yep. and just resources out there, this this podcast, just like, yeah, consume the content. Obviously you have to be selective on trying to figure out what, which is a good content to, to, to consume. There's, there's no excuse really.
0: Yeah, there's, there's none. And I, you brought up a good point. I just want to double down on. You used to have to really like, okay, I'm going to get this PhD in this to be deemed credible in this space or be able to work in the space. And that's not the case anymore. And I think that in itself is amazing because that was whether we want to gatekeeping or what people thought, that's no longer there. And so I think that's a good point to reiterate. You now don't have to be a PhD to be in AI or AML or in this new generative world. So that's amazing in itself.
1: Yeah, very good. Uh, the last piece about this uh, in terms of in the spirit of recommending things, are there any books Movies or you know things that you would recommend to the listeners to be like oh hey if I could recommend this one thing for you to check out what would you mm-hmm. say so
0: I'm I'm the absolute person to ask that because when do I get to watch movies because <laughs> I'm in grad school <laughs> no not right now and it look it's on the to do list to actually watch movies or or, or get better that are I can enjoy that's not outside of the mandatory reading so not right now hopefully next time we talk i will be more of a normal person and can say some of those cool things that's okay that's okay
1: we can cut this <laughs> section part.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so well as we're wrapping up again thank you so much tara for this time we really appreciate uh getting to, to hear from you your your experiences a very very interesting just like diverse set of things that brought you here and and what you're doing uh for the listeners who want to follow you more uh where, where can they find you
0: okay so right now i am on blue sky uh tara w is my handle i'm on linkedin i'm tara e walker on linkedin and i think that's where that's all i am right now those are the two places that you can you can follow me and github and github that's right you can follow me on github oh, and,
1: and discord I guess.
0: <laughs> Yeah. You could always find me in Discord, in any of the AI framework things. Tara, you see a geek girl picture? That'll be me. You could always follow me there. Yeah, and I'm I'm Tara W on those as well. So
1: very good, very good. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, and we'll have a great rest of the week.
0: You too. Bye.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to Humans of AI. If you're building something with AI or our perspectives you want to share. Drop me a note at alex.humansofai.xyz And be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, Chaos Theory.
0: Until next time, this is Alex, Resident Chaos Coordinator.